If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, again, verses 12 to 17 is where we're going to find ourselves. This is the third church that we are looking at in chapter 2. And again, just to remind you as we uh, go to Revelation chapter 2, uh, these are, were actual churches. Actual churches on a postal route, actual key churches that had specific characteristics that the Lord wanted to identify, but they also represent churches throughout the church age. So you can find these type of churches around the world even today. You can find the suffering church, you can find the church that lost its first love, and you can find, as we're going to be studying today, the compromising church, the worldly church. Again, if, uh, so do you have that, just that uh, first slide I can show? Just, and again, you've seen this slide, but it's just worth, oh, the, the first one, slide one. Don't you just love technology? Like every week we did. <laughs> Part of it's my problem, by the way. Just the first one. Yep, two maps. I thought I gave them to you in order. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, it's a Pergamus church. <laughs> it's the worldly. Ah, oh, that's kind of hard. Could you give me another one? That just shows the Mediterranean. Patmos. Ephesus, that's the church that lost its first love. Smyrna, 35 miles north. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna. <laughs> Smyrna is the suffering church. You know what's interesting about that is just 35 miles south or north, there was a church that was under severe suffering, but you don't find that in Ephesus. They were holding to the word. And, and you know, you find that in churches today, right? I mean, you can just be a short distance, and the problems that they have in their church can be very different than the problems that you have in your church, or the blessings, either way, how you ever want to look at it. And then uh, Smyrna, and then uh, Pergamos right here. See, so you're going up here. And then you come down, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So the point is, is that they were all within a very short distance. They say uh, Ephesus, which was the first church to Pergamus, was about 100 miles north. So we're not talking that big of an area. 100 miles, what is that, between here and Binghamton, less than that? So not a very big area. But this is the compromising church. This is the worldly church that we're looking at. By the way, when I say the word worldliness, it sounds almost like a quaint term like an old-fashioned term uh, in our day and age. You know, uh, I remember when I was going to Bible college, you know, the worldly church was those who allowed the playing of cards. <laughs> and they maybe drank and, uh, and uh, chewed and went with girls that did also or whatever. I forget. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, the point is, is, it sounds kind of old-fashioned. And in our day and age of the user-friendly, seeker-oriented, market-driven churches, which there are a lot of those, um, you know, many times I don't think they preach against worldliness. But again, it may, feel, it may make us feel uncomfortable when we start pointing out sin, but it's absolutely critical, absolutely critical uh, to understand that worldliness and being worldly is sinful. 
Worldliness, as one man said, is a, is a preoccupation with or an interest in the temporal system of this life that places this in front of that. Okay, In other words, the now versus the eternal. Uh, concerning ourselves with the now. And whether that's worldliness with our wealth, our possessions, our pleasures, but the now. Uh, pleasing now. Pleasing ourselves now. And just to kind of identify this as far as a biblical understanding, uh, John 15 says this, that we are not of the world. We've been rescued out of the world. We're not supposed to be part of it. Romans uh, 12, verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Don't allow the world's values, uh, the world's motivations, the world's directions to be the guide of your life. That's very hard. That is very difficult because media is constantly pushing their uh, value system on you, right? Can we agree with that? That media, whatever media that is, whether you're listening to a radio on the internet, uh, you have Netflix and watching movies or uh, news organizations, whatever you do, they are pushing the world system. And so we have to identify and say, yes, don't be conformed to this world. They are totally terrified by the fact that there's this other group in the Middle East and they may take over the world. Well, I'm not saying I don't get unnerved by it, but you know what the world says? There's no hope. And, and we have all kinds of hope. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen. And Israel will be there. You can pray for Israel, but Israel will be there. There's a purpose for Israel. I'm just waiting for the miracle. I'm waiting for the miracle. How, does, how do they get saved this time out of this situation? Uh, where it's, it's interesting that in Revelation, I've been thinking a lot about this, where it talks about the blood going to the, 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 um, the horse's bridle. And I always thought, well, that's just a terminology because, uh, you know, uh, they wouldn't have understood the, you know, the halfway up the tank. But with everything that's happening, I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering if they're going to have to go back to horses. I'm wondering if something happens in our world where electricity and electronic instruments are no longer able to be used. Anyways, Titus chapter 2 says this, As believers, we are to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly righteous and godly in this present age. We have to deny, we have to refuse ungodliness and worldly desires. That's part of being a Christian. James tells us to keep ourselves unstained from the world or unstained by the world. That's hard. You know, when you think of stain, I always think of being slopped on by something. You know, like if you ever walk into a barn, <laughs> cow barn, and, you know, you're trying to, and, you know, and the cow has to do his duty, you might get slopped on. Boy, that's, yeah, you get the picture, though. But the point is, I think it's a good picture because we have a tendency to get splashed on by the world, to be unstained by the world. So that's what James says. In fact, he goes on in chapter 4, verse 4, he, 4, 4, he also says this, He who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, don't be an adulterer. Don't adulterate yourself with the world and think you're serving God. And then the, the key passage is in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 
2.15 says, do not love, and that's the word agape, the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If, if, if love for the world is in your heart, then you can't have the love for the Father. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the lust of the flesh are all the sensual pleasure things. Galatians 5, you can find that in. The lust of the eyes really has more to do with eyes are never satisfied. Covetousness, more, I just want more, I need more satisfaction, I need more security, and I'm going to find it in the world. And then finally, the boastful pride of life is the elevation of self. I love what 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? I don't know, did any of you read MacArthur's, John MacArthur's Strength for Today, devotional today? Anybody? Eh, a couple of you. Boy, if you want a great devotional, Strength for the Day, just get on uh, uh, Grace to You. The devotional will be sent to you every day, email, or your particular device that you want it sent to. But his point today was this, not that verse, but he said, whatever we have comes directly from God. That just destroys all pride and exalts humility in our life, Right? Everything that we have, and yet the world says, you have to go out and get it. You have to be, you're self-made man, all that. That's worldly. Because you're, but what that does is it creates independence from God, not a dependence on him. So worldliness. The other thing, the other piece to worldliness, and this all sets us up for this church, is when worldliness comes into a life or into a church, there's going to be a uh, going towards compromise. So you're going to have worldly compromise. As one said, it backs away from moral principles, compromise does, and easily surrenders uh, truth to a lie. It is founded on selfish or impure motives. It's like erosion. Compromise is like erosion. I, I remember when we, were, uh, when we had our um, cottage up at, uh, on the lake, and uh, the first year we had this really nice slip that went out into the, you know, the pond there, and you'd park your boat, and it was great. You know, you could walk out there, and then that lasts about four or five years. But by the, about the sixth year, we started, knowing, uh, started seeing a lot of erosion. I mean, there was an island out there, like, you know, like 100 feet out, and all of a sudden the island stood there, the rocks on the island, but the, all the dirt between the island and the mainland was starting to get eroded. And by the last year before we sold, there was no slip. Everything, it had, and it was slow. It had, it had happened when we were not even there. It happened during the winter with all the hard winters and stuff like that. But erosion happens slowly many times. And when it comes to compromise in your life and compromise in a church, it can happen very slowly. It's just capitulating to this particular truth or not dealing with this particular lie or this particular sin or this particular situation or this particular person. And what you're doing is you're just allows, allowing erosion in the body of Christ. We begin to turn a deaf ear. This is how subtle it is, how, how silent, how gradually. We turn a deaf ear to the corruption and the falsehoods around us. Before long, we begin to put up with the sins. We become used to seeing them all around us. Even worse, we, become, we come to expect and accept them. And before long, we embrace them in our own lives. Just very slow, gradual. I was talking to Dave Kane, um, 
And he was telling me about his eyes and how good they were doing because he had cataract. Is Dave here? Or is he out? Probably in the back. This thing is going to drive me crazy right here. <laughs> um, he had cataract surgery. He says now, he said, I was hoping for what, 2040? But he says it's like almost like 2020. But you know what? When it comes to cataracts, which is, I guess, a buildup of protein where the light's not able to come through, if I understand right, it comes very slowly. And then all of a sudden, though, if you have surgery and it's cleaned out, man, I can see again. I remember my grandfather telling me that. It's like, I, can, I didn't know those trees were out there type of scenario. <laughs> Worldly compromise are like spiritual cataracts. And the problem is we don't see it coming. It's very, very gradual. So again, this is what's happened, I believe, in the church at Pergamos. Let's get into our text, verse 12. If you're there, the commission and to the angel of the church in Pergamum. To the angel, to the star, according to chapter 1, verse 20. That's the pastor. That's the leader. And again, I, I've defended the fact of plurality, but I think he's just speaking to the, the, um, the, the uh, speaking elder, as it were. That's who it's commissioned to, from Christ, through Paul, or through John, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now again, Pergamum, that's the city that it's being written to. Uh, by the way, if you went to the middle, or the uh, Asia Minor today, it wouldn't be Pergamum. It's, it's actually called Bergama, Bergama, B-E-R-G-A-M-A. I think you can still uh, go to the seven church location. A lot of times if you go to Israel, they can give you, you can also buy a second tour. I think you can still do that. Um, but anyways, Berg, Bergam. It was, again, about 60 miles north of Smyrna. It wasn't on the Aegean Sea. It was actually about 10, 15 miles inland. And again, 100 miles from Ephesus. I'm only telling you that because, again, these people would have known possibly each other. Although, when you take either 35 or 60 miles away in a day when they didn't have phones, they didn't have cars, they may not have known each other at all. Okay? Uh, there was a possibility some of them might know each other. Uh, one of the people from Pergama, uh, Pliny. By the way, some have said it's Pergama, some have said it's Pergamos. It depends on your, but you get the point. Uh, it was the capital of Asia Minor. It was a distinguished city. That's what one of the uh, citizens of Pergama said. It's the most distinguished city of Asia Minor. Well, I'm sure we all think that. Don't you think that of that, Charlie? Hornell is the most distinguished town. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the point is, is this was a capital city. Um, it was another center of emperor worship. Mark that one down. That's very important. Because I think that's part of the, uh, where the problems came from. It was a center of emperor worship, just like Smyrna was. Uh, commercially, uh, it wasn't as important. It was not as important as Ephesus or Smyrna. But one of the things they were noted for was the manufacturing of uh, paper um, as far as writing material. Uh, they also had a huge library. Only, the only one that rivaled it was Alexandria's library, 200,000 200, volumes. It makes sense that they produce paper, you know, used in the library. Uh, again, educationally, they, um, they had a um, uh, medicine, and they had their own uh, uh, hospital and development of medicine there, uh, Galen, G-A-L-E-N. 
was one of the founders of ancient medicine. He lived there. And they had a great a, a major gymnasium, a, a fantastic grand theater. But, but the real issues were this. Emperor worship, the altar of Zeus. In fact, uh, do we have some of those slides? Yeah. Do you have the one before that? Just the, the amphitheater? Yeah. Now, this is an actual, this is an actual picture, right? And you can see exactly how the amphitheater was. And this was a huge mountain, about eight, eight or 900 feet above where the, uh, the town was, I mean the city. So the city was all around it and you had this huge Acropolis. And at the time, that's where the, the gods, by the way, you didn't put the gods down in the valley, you put them on top of the hill. So the temples, the altars were up here and the, uh, the theater was up here. Now I say that because if you go to the next picture, remember this, this is just an artist's rendition. This is not there. But see, do you see where the, that's that right there? See, we were standing right there looking at this over here. So you can, and what they do is they go in on the ruins and they start finding pieces. Oh, this was a temple. Oh, this was the uh, colonnade. Oh, this was the theater. And then they can start reproducing what it would have looked like back then. That's, a, again, an um, uh, artist's rendition. Next one is inside there, this is Zeus's altar, altar of Zeus. Now again, you notice this has been enclosed. I believe this was right there on top. In other words, they left it there, but for preservation's sake, they actually built around. And they say that this colonnade around here was hundreds of feet, I mean, obviously, uh, three, four hundred feet around, and what would they say, about 40 feet high. And, and that was like the altar so when we think of altar, we're not talking some little thing. We're talking this huge thing, and that was to the god Zeus. The other one they had was the god of medicine, and that was Acolepius. Is that how you say that? God of healing. Now notice what he has there. A snake. That's a snake. And we use the same type of scenario in American Medical Association. Um, I wonder why they use snake other than that purpose. But the point is, is you're going to hear that in a moment. I want you to kind of keep that in your mind. Uh, the altar of Zeus, the center of worshiping, uh, the center for uh, emperor worship, and also this particular uh, the school of medicine, the god of healing, Archelopius. Okay, so that's something about the city. They were big, center of attraction type of scenario. Let's go to the second part of verse 12. The correspondent, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now again, he introduces himself, this is Christ introducing himself, and he introduces himself differently than he did to the church at Ephesus or the church at Smyrna. In Ephesus chapter 2 verse 1, it says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's authority, but that's also protection. I mean, isn't that comforting if you knew you were held in the hand of Christ? How about this one? In, in uh, Smyrna, verse, second part of verse 8, the first and the last who was dead and came to life and alive forevermore. That's comforting. See, both of those are comforting passages. Christ, you know, he holds us. He was dead, but he's alive. We were found in him. We have life. But notice what he says to these. He says, these things, I, I have a sharp two-edged sword. <laughs> This is authority and judgment. 
in this church, Christ immediately establishes himself as the judge. And by the way, the sword, let's see the sword here. Do you have that one last picture? It's a, and this is just, I just wanted to show you because they had two different types of sword. One was more like a saber uh, that was short. Uh, um, it's what the zealots used. They would hold it in there and then they'd just come up to somebody, stab them. It was only about less than 12 inches long, but we're talking about the broadsword. And there was a number of different styles. Uh, you can even look that up and there was pictures of them hitting that against a piece of wood and the wood would shatter. I mean, it was, it was heavy, it was strong, it was used for hand-to-hand -hand combat, but the idea is very destructive. You... You didn't just poke your opponent, you hacked them. It's called the Ramathia. Now that's important because what Jesus is saying is, I have authority and I'm ready to use it in judgment. He's the, he's the, he's the Savior who is the judge. And, and notice what it says. These things says, he who has the sharp uh, two-edged sword. It, it, it literally uh, it comes from his mouth. Uh, we see this in uh, other places. In fact, we're going to look at that in a moment. Uh, but he's pronouncing judgment. Well, let's go right now. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 15. 19, verse 15. I believe. Let's see. This is when he comes back to the earth. We are with him. The armies, and it says, verse 14, And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. We're there. That's us. If you're Christian, you're there. Look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Same word. That, but out of his mouth, that, which, that with what he, he uh, should strike the nations. He, he, he judges the nations by the word of his mouth. By the way, don't think of, you know, you look that up and you have a person, Jesus, with a sword sticking out of his mouth. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about uh, the word of God is sharp and powerful and he judges the nations. Uh, by the way, when we come back in Revelation 19, we are not doing battle. We are only watching. <laughs> Christ is the only one that does battle and it's just the word of his mouth. So we see him authoritative, judging, powerful. And again, in chapter 19, and I, should, I can turn to one other. Uh, chapter 19, we just looked at verse uh, 20 or 15. Let's see here. Verse um, uh, 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth, from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So again, two times. Uh, judgment, power, victory, ultimate victory. That's what it's speaking of. Now, in chapter 19, he's talking about the ungodly. Now, this is the point. In this chapter that we're in, Revelation 2, and you can turn back there, we'll be here for... He's talking about the judgment that Christ has on His church. Not to destroy, let me say that clearly, not to destroy, but to purify. Not to destroy, but to purify. But it's the power of His Word. It's, it's what we see in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now again, two-edged, both sides. It wasn't just one side. It's a two-edged sword. 
this is what Hebrews also goes on to say, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Because the Word of God is living and powerful and sharp and it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. Those are something that you cannot divide, but the Word of God can. But it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Do you feel that poking? Do you ever do you feel the poking of the Word of God in your life? Poke, poke, poke. Right? I hope you do. I hope you... If you don't, question your salvation. I'm doing a series, ABF, on uh, how do you know for sure you're saved. By the way, if you're not in Ken's class and you'd like to find yourself in a good class, I mean a good... I mean, that's a good class. But... <laughs> I, I know when I was saying that, it didn't sound right. I'm saying if you're, not in, if you're not in that good class and you want to find yourself in another good class, come on downstairs. Yeah. Okay, help me out here. Throw me the line. I'm in the ditch. No, I, what I'm trying to say is this. I am not trying to get you from Ken's class. In fact, that's why I didn't, when, when I sent the message out yesterday, I only said it's, it, I didn't, I am not trying to draw some people out of there into here. It, I'm just saying, if you are interested in knowing what are the true tests of salvation, and you're not in an ABF class, I'd encourage you to come Sunday morning, 9.30 downstairs. It is so critical. I started out with this thought this morning. Wouldn't it be sad for a person to sit in an evangelical church, hear the gospel week after week, year after year, and then find themselves in hell because they never had true faith? So again, we've got to make sure and, and also say the same thing about our children and grandkids. What he's getting at right here is this. It is Christ himself that executes righteous judgment. And by the way, this is not positive. This is negative. This is a negative. In other words, I'm saying it's a positive that happens, but it's negative. When he talks about the sword, he's saying, listen, I am ready to, I am ready to judge those who are, are willingly, unrepentantly sinning. He's, if you're one of his, he's, he's going to be judging you. Well, he judges us all the time through the Spirit of God as far as conviction. But he's saying these are unrepentant. That's why he's using this, uh, you know, that he, he's the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. This is imminent judgment on a worldly compromising church. Or as one man said, Christ's warfare against error and evil will be swift and decisive. Christ wars against a compromising church. Does that almost sound heretical when I say it? He might be warring against you. As a Christian. And, and you're the bride of Christ. And he's your good shepherd. But you may be off the path into sin. An error, an unrepentant, and let me tell you, he is severe, right? Hebrews eleven or Hebrews twelve talks about the chasing of the Lord, the, the, the scourging of the Lord. Tell me that's not severe. That's severe. The Lord wants His children, His bride, to be pure, and when we walk away from holiness and righteousness and purity, He will use even extreme measures to bring you back. I am not saying, by the way, he hacks you to death and sends you to hell. I'm saying he will use extreme measures in your life to bring you back to the path of righteousness. We need to take this passage very serious. 
How about the fourth one, the commendation? I know your works, and we've seen that repeated, and you will for the, all, all the seven churches. I know. That, that word I know means I have intricate, specific knowledge. And then he names what he knows. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, commentators really banter about as far as what do you mean by Satan's throne? You know, is it the pagan idolatry? Is it the emperor worship? Is it the altar of Zeus? It might be all three. It might be individual. Um, it might be the altar of Zeus. I just showed you the picture of that. 40 feet high, huge. It was the centerpiece of the Acropolis that stood 800 feet above the whole uh, valley below. Again, it wasn't just a small altar. It was huge. In fact, uh, MacArthur said, if you looked at the whole thing, it formed like a horseshoe. It was 120 by 112 feet wide, deep. The podium of the altar was nearly 18 feet high. There was a frieze uh, depiction that was 400 some feet around that showed all the different pieces. Okay, so it was huge. Maybe that's what he means by the altar because this was the centerpiece, the altar of Zeus. That might be the throne, the Satan. Now just think, the church is in this big city and you have this huge Acropolis that every time they walk to church, they see. I mean, and all the... All the worshipers go up the mountain to worship uh, a piece of stone. I just find it so interesting that people who say they're intelligent worship dead items, you know, like stones and wood and all this other. That might be the altar, or excuse me, that might be the, where Satan's throne is. Uh, the second might be the, the uh, how do you say that word? Uh, Ascalipius. Um, the god of medicine, you know, the guy with the snake. Uh, what, did, what did Satan in the Garden of Eden, he was a serpent. Eh, they might be referring to that altar, okay? Uh, the god of medicine. But actually, I personally think it was the, uh, the um, uh, worship of the emperor, because it, whereas Smyrna had an altar for the worship of the emperor, this was the altar. Whereas the other one was used once a year, a person had to come to uh, give sacrifice, give incense. This one was right there. It was the very center. It was the, the, the key one in the entire area. And to say that Caesar is Lord meant that no longer uh, were you able to say that Jesus is Lord and I do believe that when uh, Jesus says, I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is, I, I believe he's talking about emperor worship. But, now, but look it, what did they do? And you hold fast to my name. Praise God. This is, this is a commendation. They held fast even in the midst of all the ungodliness and wickedness that was around them. And it's in the present tense, which means you continually hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. You hold fast and you did not deny. In fact, the word not deny my faith means the faith in me. You held, as a church, as a whole, you held, you held strong to faith in me. And for that, I do believe that the sword has comfort in it, right? 
See, okay, I said that the sword was used for, the sharp two-edged sword was used for judgment, and I believe that in the next moment you're going to see that. But I also believe this, that he brings it up, because it, especially in this letter, you go right to Revelation 19, verse 15 and 21, which we read earlier, and, and it reminds us that no matter what happens on this earth while we're living, there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ, with us, behind him and we come to this earth and the final judgment will begin right victory is at hand no matter what happens to us victory is at hand and i believe he even said the sword to say you know what you're holding fast you didn't deny my faith and then he even brings up a a, a person look at this of my faith even in the days in which antipas was my faithful martyr and that word faithful martyr you get faithful, faithful testimony. The word martyr was martus, and because so many people, uh, excuse me, so many people died giving testimony to Jesus Christ, that word martus became those who would die. In other words, our word martyr came from the word martus because so many were faithful witnesses. That faithful is, um, means faithful or believe, but the word witness. So many gave witness to Christ. And when they gave witness to Christ, they died, that the word literally became martyr. To be faithful to Christ meant to be a martyr for him. And he said, there's this man, Antipas, and uh, he was faithful. He was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so he says that again, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. I mean, can you imagine, you know, the police coming in and the people of the temple coming in and let's see here. They grabbed Don. And Don was dragged out of here in front of us. And he was brought and he was killed. And we're now meeting a month later, remembering the fact that, you know, one of our own was killed. And so Jesus, you know, he's forever in Holy Scripture that Antipas was faithful even unto death. And again, that, that word faithful, faithful witness was used of Christ himself in, in Revelation 1.5. We already saw that. He's going to be used again in chapter 3, verse 14. I mean, it was, that, that statement was used of Christ. He's the faithful witness. It's also used of one of his own children, Antipas. He's a faithful witness. Now, tradition tells us that Antipas was killed during the persecution of Domination, which is the last part of the first century. Because he had been summoned before the proconsul to sprinkle a few grains. This is what tradition says. That this man was uh, summoned to sprinkle a few grains of incense on the fire and say, uh, Christ, or say that Caesar is Lord. And refusing, he experienced the ultimate punishment of death by being slowly roasted to death in a brazen bull. That's what tradition says. They would, uh, in fact, if you look on, um, oh, YouTube, you can actually see the, uh, you know, I mean, they literally, it was a, they found these things, a brazen bull. On the top was an opening, they throw a person down in it. And then they would light a fire and the person would literally be slow cooked to death. I mean, brutal. When we see the stuff on the news, just understand, brutality and a murderous heart has been from the beginning. Okay, you go back into the Middle Ages, you go back in the 1700s, 1800s, Torture, brutality has always been. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Aren't you looking forward to Jesus Christ coming and setting up his kingdom? And scripture still says at the end of the thousand years there's a rebellion. 
Because the heart of man does not change unless the Spirit of God changes the heart of man. But again, he was faithful even unto death. You know, I, I think of different ones that have been faithful. Let me just give you one other story. John and Betty Stamm, they were missionaries to China back in the 1930s. They were martyred. They were martyred on December 8th, 1934, which I find interesting. That's my wife's birthday. Next time, is, every time we should celebrate their death, your birthday. No, uh, the point is, is this. They were faithful. In fact, they suffered the same type of end. Let me read how it's said of them. As part of John and Betty's torture, the capturers discussed whether they would kill the infant. Her, her name was Helen. She was only three months old. But as an unexpected protest arose from an onlooking Chinese farmer who had been released from prison the communists sacked the, after the communists had sacked this hound, uh, he stepped forward, this other guy, uh, to plead for the life of the baby. Then it's your life for hers, they retorted. I am willing, he replied. He was then chopped to pieces. One man, a Christian doctor, fell to his knees and pleaded for the lives of his friends. He persisted until the, the communists dragged him away to suffer death. Those who witnessed the approaching tragedy marveled at the calmness with which John and Betty faced the worst their misguided enemies could do. John began to speak to the crowd Probably a Christian testimony, but the executioner cut his throat. Betty quivered, still bound, fell on her knees beside him. A quick command and a flash of the sword from behind reunited them for eternity. Both died. By the way, Helen was saved. And uh, I think lived to uh, the 90s, I believe it was. You know what the point is of this, though? They were faithful unto death because this is a truism. Trials do not create the heart, it only reveals the heart. Trials do not create the heart, it only reveals the heart. What am I saying? When you go through a trial, it reveals what's really in your heart. If you go through a trial and you become angry and vindictive and wrathful and hateful and doubt because, you know, shake your hand at fist, just know that was in your heart before the trial. Because a trial doesn't create the heart, it only reveals the heart. The fact that they were faithful unto death because their heart was set on Christ even before the trial began. That's instructive for all of us because you get in situations, and I believe God puts us all through different trials, and what he's doing, he's exposing your heart. Not because he needs to know, he already knows. But he wants you to know what's in your heart. So, if your wife or husband doesn't do exactly what you want them to do and you have a hissy fit and start whatever, just know that's what's in your heart. Or your children, you know, interrupt and bother and all of a sudden I have an explosion that was in my heart. Or you're going back home and the transmission ends up on the road and you keep moving down the road. And depending on your reaction, good or bad, know that that's what's in your heart. It's out of the heart those things come. That's why it says that God sometimes even allows us to suffer. It's suffering according to the will of God. Let's look at the fifth part. But, man, underline that, transition. He's, he's just said, man, you've been faithful, you held fast. Not just Antipas held fast, the church did. But, this is the confrontation, I have a few things against you. 
And I think when he says you, he's talking first to the pastor and the leaders, and then to them as a congregation, because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. By the way, we find things out about Balaam, the situation that's found in Numbers 22 to 25 Old Testament. In, in that part, we don't find out about Balaam, what, his actual, what he did. Here we find out he put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, what? To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. That was, the, that's what he, that was his sin. Thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Two different things, doctrine of Balaam, doctrine of Nicolaitans. Both he hates, Christ hates. Both are in the church. Both are allowed to be in the church. This is the interesting thing. Though the church held fast and even had a martyr, they still compromised truth and allowed sin to, uh, to fester in the church. You almost look at the church like, how can that be? I mean, can't it just be one or the other? They held fast in the area of certain things, even to death, and yet they allowed and those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And Christ says, I have a sharp two-edged sword. I, I'm, 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 I'm going to come and make war against this compromise. Now again, with Smyrna, the suffering church that we looked at last week, that purified the church. The church of Smyrna had no uh, confrontation, no concern. When, the, when Jesus spoke to the second church, he said nothing negative. But with this one, he gave some positive, and now he gave some negative. Let me tell you what, about this, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Uh, Balak, king of Moab, basically hires this prophet, turns out to be a false prophet, Balaam, basically hires him to curse Israel. Finds out, you know, he's looking at Israel, and he's saying, this is a great nation, they need to be cursed. As one man wrote, this, on several occasions, Balaam tried but failed in cursing Israel on, King's, on King Balak's behalf. Balaam, the false prophet, struggled between, true, uh, between being true to God's word and his desire for honor among men. Even unbelieving King Balak diagnosed the, prov- uh, the problem in Numbers 24. It said this, Therefore flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. The idea is this. You can't curse what God says I'm going to bless. That's the bottom line of the whole story. Balaam keeps trying to curse Israel and God keeps confronting him and saying, you're not going to curse my people. (laughs) You can't curse what God wants to bless. Let me go on. So badly did Balaam want the prestige, the power, the uh, the, the, the mammon of life that he finally succumbed to the temptation. Although Balaam remained true to deliver God's message personally because he blessed Israel, he nevertheless instructed Balak on how to cause the Jews to bring a curse upon themselves. Now I want you to get this. He's hired to curse, God blesses. So the idea is this, if you can't curse them, then corrupt them. That's huge. In a church, that. If you, if you want to bring a church down, you don't have to curse the church, just allow corruption to run rampant. In Numbers 31, verse 16, it says, Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peorah. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. If you cannot curse the people of God, 
then corrupt the people of God. And that's what happens in Numbers 25, if you want to just have the passage. Numbers 25. Numbers. Uh, actually, if, yeah, Numbers 25. But if you want to read the whole thing at, again some other time, it's 22 to 25. Look at verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 1. Now this is how... So, so from this passage that we're in in Revelation, we find out like behind the scenes, well, how did it all really happen? Well, he put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Balaam explained to Balak how he could destroy Israel and use sin. That's how you do it. And in chapter 25 of Numbers, verse 1, it says, Now Israel remained in the Achaia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. All right, so what are we talking about? The men of Israel, look at all these pretty women coming from Moab. And if you can't get them one way, you get them the other, and sex is the way to get them. They invited the people to the sac because once you get them as far as sexually, verse 2, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate, people would be Israel, and bowed down to their gods, their pagan gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peora, Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, if we ever think that our Lord is not severe against sin, I want you to see four, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord. Out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. That's Israel's leaders. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill or slay his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And if you go to verse 9, it says there was a great plague. And if it wasn't for the fact that the Lord killed 24,000 Israelites, it would have continued. God considers very, very seriously when his people walk into unrighteousness, walk the path of unrighteousness. So the doctrine of Baal is this. What's happening? I want to bring this, for time's sake, into the church. They were standing for the name of Christ, but apparently they were not willing to judge sin amongst them. And immorality and the doctrine of Balaam, which is, uh, in other words, it's idolatry and immorality. In, in, in the Old Testament and New, you see those going together. Immorality and idolatry go together, and it was allowed to prosper, it was allowed to uh, uh, grow in this particular church. So the doctrine of Balaam, therefore, was the teaching that the people of God should intermarry with the heathen and compromise in the matters of idolatrous worship was probably the worship of, of the emperor. In, in other words, this is how it would play out. They would, uh, okay, you know, we have our worship service, but, you know, there's going to be times that you may have to, you know, just to save your life, throw the incense to the emperor once a year. It's only once a year. Then just confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Or the fact of, you know what, there's a lot of immorality here and sometimes it spills over in the church and it's okay. I mean, do we really want to do church discipline on somebody? I mean, they might get offended. We may not be able to grow our church. Uh, people might leave. People might say that we are too fanatical. Uh, people might say that we are too harsh. Matthew says this, no one can serve two masters. Either love the one hate the other. You can't serve God and man. By the way, the Nicolaitans, we really don't know, and I'm not going to try to uh, say too much, only to say that an old, uh, a first century writer said of the Nicolaitans, quote, they live 
They lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. Pleasure seekers. Get the most from life as you can. I do know what scripture says, though, of them. It says in chapter Romans, or Revelation chapter 2, um, verse 6, of the deeds of the Nicolaitans, I hate. And here, it says in verse 15, the, Nicolaitan, uh, the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, so it's not just the deeds, but the doctrines, and those do go hand in hand, right? Doctrine and deeds, which you think you will become. He also says, I hate. But what's happening? It's in the church. Now just think about that. Christ wants a pure bride. The washing of water with the word, and yet the, the, the leadership and the church is not, um, is not punishing sin, and it's just starting to grow. Immorality, idolatry. What's the counsel? Repent. The word repentance is metanoia. It means it describes the change of a mind that results in the change of behavior. That's all you really have to know. That's what we just saw with the Nicolaitans. I hate their doctrine and I hate their deeds. I'm afraid that sometimes, as in, at least in, as individuals, I do believe that we seek to take care of sin in our church. But I wonder if we are taking care of sin in our individual lives. How does that happen? We laugh at the impure. We click a few more times than we should on the internet and see a whole lot of impure. We don't repent quickly. And our lives become like cataract, spiritually. We get more and more dull. We, you know, we worry and we don't confess and we and listen to the news and it just becomes this cataract in our life. And before long, we're just hoping that some really conservative guy is going to lead this country into righteousness. The only person that's ever going to lead this country into righteousness is Christ. Right? But do you see how that happens? That cataract happens? We start to put our trust, our hope, our peace, our joy in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's like a slow cataract. And we don't, see, we don't see it. because, And that's why when you take off the physical cataract, all of a sudden, and you know what we need to do when it comes to, when he says the word repent? If you know of something in your life that you need to take care of it, do it severely. Hack it to death like Agag. Remember Saul, you know, but saves the best and saves the king. What did Samuel do? Hacked him to death. And I think when it comes to our sins, we need to hack it to death. We need to be like Proverbs 28. Uh, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but what? He who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And whether it's in a church or whether it's in an individual, we need to hear that word, verse 16, repent. What? Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He will war against the church. He will war against the church's enemies. And sometimes we become, we become the antagonist. I'm not going to use the word enemy, but we become the antagonist to, against the, our Lord himself. We don't do what his word says. We need to repent. That's why it says of, to Paul to Titus, he says, speak these things. This is to a pastor. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. What do you mean? 
The only authority we have is what is found in the Word of God, but we need to be authoritative about it. In other words, we need to speak with authority. We need to protect our own individual lives, our purity, our holiness, our righteousness, and we need to protect this church. I'm very concerned. We are... that. The, the splash of ungodliness is all around us. And I'll tell you what, if you are not hypervigilant, you will be splashed over and over again. And your, those cataracts will grow spiritually in your eyes and you won't even see it. Things will be said and done and looked upon today that you would never have thought 5, 10, 15 years ago. That's cataracts. Or else I will fight. That's war terms. One final passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then I'll just close with the verse that we're in. 1 Corinthians. Carnal Corinthians, right? That's what we call them, carnal Corinthians. There was a guy in the church that had his father's wife, stepmother. And the church was not willing to condemn and confront and discipline sin. And look at what he says in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 2. And you are puffed up and have now rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. I'm absent in the body, but I've already judged this. Verse 4, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's our authority. When you are gathered together along with my spirit, I'm not going to be there, but my spirit, uh, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, says it again, deliver such a one to Satan. What? So that their flesh might be destroyed, that their spirit might be saved. They might get truly saved. Verse 6, your glory is not good. Do not you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Or I can say it this way, if we allow sin in this church, it's going to... In fact, I can tell you, church, right now, they don't take care of sin in marriages, and it keeps coming back to haunt them within 15 miles of this church. But I'll tell you what, I also say this. If you're in sin, known, unrepentant sin, you're still, you are having an effect on this church. You know, clicking too much on the internet. I say that one because that is, that is one I have struggled with and that is one I find so many men struggle with and that is affecting the church. Just blasts of anger affects the church. We need to be repentant people. Purge out. By the way, we don't discipline for every sin. We, we, the discipline issue is for unrepentant sin. But to go to verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle, because I want to make sure I'm balanced in this. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of the people of the world. I mean, you're going to have to go out of the world. In other words, sometimes Christians, when they go to, a, let's say, a soccer game and they watch little Susie play soccer and they find out little Susie has two mommies, what do we do? We move away from that person. That's actually the person we should be moving towards. I mean, don't become like them, but you have a chance to witness and be an example to them. No, no. He says, I'm not talking about the people of the world, verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunker, extortioner. Not even to eat with a person. No. Why? Because look at verse 13. God judges, therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. We need a pure church. The whole message today is this. You can be a church that stands for Christ, his name, and yet allow sin in, either through your own personal lives, 
Thankfully, I don't believe we have the teaching of the Balaam here. I do believe that we have sought to, as leadership, deal with sin. I I trust that we are an evangelical, doctrinally sound, God-honoring church. Finally, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you overcome, if you're victorious, which is a true Christian, three different things. I'm going to give you hidden manna. I love that. Jesus is the bread of life. I think hidden manna refers to the fact that he will be your sustenance. If you purify your life, you're going to find there's reward. And one of them is you just find the sufficiency of Christ, the sustenance of Christ in your life. The second, I'll give him a white stone. White stone. When an athletic person won an event, they were given a white stone. And with that white stone was their name on it. And that allowed them to go to the, uh, the award ceremony for those events. And I think that's what he's talking about. It allows you into the, uh, the awards uh, uh, ceremony of the Bema seat and a new name. And that's so much you can say about the new name. When Christ rescued us from darkness and brought us into light, didn't he just change everything about us? Someday you're even given a new name that only you will know. The, the point of that, and, and a lot, there's a lot of discussion what those mean. The point is this. You're an overcomer, you get rewards. Whatever you suffer on this earth is not even be compared to the immeasurable, unbelievable glories and rewards that will be found in eternity. And every time that Jesus speaks to a church, he ends the same way. Fight the good fight because reward day is coming. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and worship him.